0: Hello and welcome to the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch reading series, the COVID edition. I'm Sarah Krotz, Director of the Canadian Literature Centre, which is based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Known to many as a Amiskwetchi Weskegan, Edmonton is located on Treaty 6 territory in the Métis Nation of Alberta, District 4. Like so many other live, in-person readings this year, the CLC's Brown Bag Lunch series has been affected by COVID-19. Instead of our monthly program hosting writers from across Canada at the University of Alberta, we're pleased to offer you our 2020-21 series in podcast form, delivered right to your living room or kitchen. We hope you enjoy this chance to connect with authors from across the country. Today's podcast reader is Rebecca Thomas, a Mi'kmaq poet, spoken word artist, and activist raised in Moncton, New Brunswick. A former poet laureate of Halifax, Thomas is the winner of an Indigenous Artist Recognition Award. She has performed with a tribe called Red and written for the CBC and Washington Post, as well as multiple books for children and adults. Thomas is a self-described change maker. For her, poetry and storytelling are critical tools for education and empowerment. They can illuminate racism and inequality, nurture empathy, and honour Indigenous experiences. Thomas's poetic voice has been described as open, honest and distinctive, prompting change in her community and beyond. In this podcast, she reads to us from her newly released first collection of poetry, I Place You Into the Fire, which came out with Nimbus in October
1: 2020. Hello. Um, my name is Rebecca Thomas, and I am from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, and I am here to read you folks some poetry. Um, Before we get started, I just wanted to say a big thank you um, to the people who um, invited me here to read to you folks. I just wanted to say thank you um, for taking the time to listen to my poetry. Uh, Now, this is very exciting for me because I get to read from my uh, brand new book. It's called, I Place You Into the Fire. And um, this is the collection of all the poems that I've ever written. Um, I've been writing poetry since 2013, nothing, not too, too long. Um, I did lots of academic stuff. I have written master's theses and taken part in papers and all that sort of stuff and articles. But um, this was the way that I found to be most effective when trying to teach and communicate um, my experience and um, kind of indigenous history in Canada and how it kind of butts up against what so often people think of as you know, the quote unquote truth uh, of history and that that truth is mm, less truth and more one interpretation. And so I use poetry in a way to do that. I use art in a way to do that because I may not be able to change somebody's mind but I might be able to elicit a feeling and that feeling then may you know pick away and hopefully that feeling will then lead to somebody changing their mind or wanting to become an advocate or um, will learn about their privilege and and so so many things Um, and so I'm very excited for me to be able to read this stuff for you Um, during this time you know as somebody who writes a lot um I have found myself struggling to write um, for myself, but writing very well for other people. So uh, some folks have um, sent me things that they would like to have written. And that was really a lot of fun. Um, Some folks have um, commissioned pieces and it made me think in a different way because I wasn't the person to come up with the idea that they were and I was just expected to put my spin or flare or however it is that I decide to write on it and so that was kind of cool um, and hopefully I'll be able to share some of those works with you as well. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the poems that I did want to share with you um, are organized in this book under three uh, different um, headings and They're based around three Mi'gama words that sound very similar. So the first word is gesalul, which means I love you. And so the poems about love um, are often the most difficult for me to write and to share. I feel very, very embarrassed um, about them. And that's just because the way that I grew up, love and sadness... And sorrow were seen as very frivolous and very selfish emotions, um, and that there were bigger things in the world that needed to be done with. And so, because of that, I always felt shame around a lot of these emotions. And for me to write about them felt like I was doing something embarrassing or shameful. And so, I didn't want to put these poems into this book, but after lots of thinking about it, I realized that there are, must be so many other people in the world and Indigenous people who feel shame around these emotions too. And if I can, you know, maybe fail or feel these emotions in a very public way, it'll hopefully give these people permission to feel those emotions in a really healthy and good way. And so, um, yeah, I guess, I guess here we go. I guess that'll be the first bit of poetry that I read for you folks. So um, with that is uh, a poem, pardon the language, it is called Fuck Bums. Um I wrote this for a poetry workshop actually with Nisha Patel, who's the poet laureate of Edmonton. Um, and she had this fantastic um, prompt that said to read or write a poem about a very specific memory in your childhood. And I wrote about hot dog buns. Opening the fridge door, I spy what I'm looking for. The 99 cent pack of hot dogs and Heinz ketchup. That was always a staple in a house that was constantly running out of milk. The mustard could be no name, French's or some other off brand. It didn't matter. It was all about the ketchup. When times were dire, you still had to know how to treat yourself. But the mustard had to be neon yellow with enough vinegar to polish silver. There are those who boil hot dogs or fry them in a pan. But in this under-supervised, overstretched house, it was one, two, three on the microwave on thrift store dishes, assuming they were clean dishes. Otherwise, those bad boys went on nothing. The results were the same. We didn't fuck with buns. A couple of slices of Wonder Bread, except it wasn't Wonder Bread. It was the grocery store version that would disappear in a day. Fold it in half around cheese whiz, peanut butter, or in this case, hot dogs. Like I said, we didn't fuck with buns. We had to have more than a single talent. We had to be multifaceted in our skill set if we were to ever make it out of that house. We had to rise and grind, be toast for breakfast, a little burnt, but you just had to scrape that off. There were no do-overs, nothing went to waste. We had to carry it all and be thick-skinned enough for a sandwich at lunch, holding in the too much that was put on us. And we had to be grilled cheese for dinner, dipped in Campbell's tomato soup, except it wasn't Campbell's. It was no name, but it got the job done without all the compliments. We carried around our food on paper towels since the dishes weren't clean, except it wasn't paper towel. It was a couple of pieces of toilet paper stashed on top of the fridge next to the scotch tape in case we needed tissues or a Band-Aid. We sat in front of the TV eating our supper, watching sitcoms like Family Matters, Full House, and Boy Meets World with their name brand things, clean dishes, and parents. We wondered what it was like to live in a fairy tale. I still prefer microwave hot dogs on bread. I don't buy buns because I know better. Um, as you can tell, I, I grew up in a house that wasn't, that wasn't safe. It wasn't well supervised and often we were left alone and did the best that we could. And so I think that, you know, the idea that a hot dog bun serves one purpose and one person purpose only and the luxury and the privilege it is to be in that position. And that wasn't something that we had. So fuck buns. We had to be bred. We had to make do with what we had. So this next poem is about my dad. I write about my dad a lot. I talk about my dad a lot in how it and how he has informed my identity through his presence and his absence. And so this poem is called Child. Uh, He calls everyone child, but it's just become this kind of name for all of the kids in his life. Child, he says. Child, he calls me. Child instead of deuce, because residential school knocked his language loose. So I'm his child as he tries to make a connection, passing on dark eyes instead of inflection. He lost his direction. His world was gripped by colonial infection. Now here I stand, my feet bruised and bleeding. The path is well worn from my ancestor, but it is in need of weeding. So that was just a very short poem that I wrote um, just about how my dad did the best he could to connect with us. Um, But it wasn't always there. And it's still sometimes awkward. You know, My dad went to residential school. He didn't learn how to really communicate his feelings well. Um, And even though we have a really good relationship now, those those upbringings on both of our parts still come back and get in the way of a, a really good relationship. But I think I have I acknowledge the fact that at least he's around and he's still here. And, and that in itself makes me really lucky. Because I know there's lots of indigenous kids who didn't who haven't had that chance to make amends and make peace with their parents. So speaking of parents, this next poem is called I Hold Her in My Hands. It's about my mom. I don't write about my mom very often. She was a private lady. Um, and she's quite ill, and I haven't seen her in a very long time. Um, and it's it's painful to, to think about it and to write about her. I was very close with my mom when I was young. Um, and so to not have her in my life right now is really hard. But at the same time, it's accepting that this is the situation, and I can still carry her forward in my own way. So <clears throat> this piece is called, I Hold Her in My Hands. She had a particular way of knitting her fingers together while she waited for her nail polish to dry. I was forever curious as to why symmetry didn't apply. The nail on her index finger was rounded while the nail on her ring finger was square. Each stroke of polish applied with care. There were ridges on her nails and mine were so smooth. It's something that aging will do, she'd say. Just wait, it'll happen to you too. She never wore rings never a wedding band or for fashion. They would catch on the gloves needed for her profession, knuckles bumpy and bulbous with delicate connections between each joint. With each passing year, she lost more words and my vocabulary grew and I knew she wasn't the same. She became smaller and I garnered more fame, too busy to take a plane to see her. Intellect replaced with aphasia and wails, she could no longer sit still for her nails. As I paint mine, I am careful around the square edges of my ring finger. I knit my hands together while they dry, interconnecting my swollen joints. It's difficult to remove my wedding band at some points of the day. Frustrated that the nail polish won't lay flat on the uneven ridges of my keratin, angry her illness was something as simple as an unmeasured increase in ferritin, it has been years since we've spoken. Our relationship corroded from rust. I am my mother's daughter. I've come to trust and understand. And as I age, I take great comfort that I can hold on to her in my hands. So thank you for listening to that. Um, it, I, it's hard for me sometimes to think and write about my mom, but I think it's an important part of how I honor her. Um, and our relationship, so um, thank you for listening to that piece. This next poem is called "Because I have to." I feel a great sense of responsibility for the work that I do. Um, I don't do it because I want to be a famous author or writer. I don't do it because, Um, I feel like I necessarily have this talent or joy that comes from writing, though I really do enjoy the performing aspect of it. I do it because I feel uh, like I I have to, and that's what this poem is called. It's called because I have to, and I have an opportunity in a position where I can have these conversations and I can um, have access to people who make decisions um, and I, I, can hopefully elicit change in a way that will improve the life of so many people. And so I have to, right? I'm pretty great, but I cry a lot. And I've been told that I speak too much, that I talk a lot. So I tend to overthink things and seethe a lot. I take deep breaths a lot, walk a lot, tweet, gram, write, and push back a lot. I cry a lot. I get told to stay in my lane more often than not. I can't help that I don't and won't fit in a box. I was never allowed to call all the shots. But I can build skyscrapers when given only half the blocks. I've written PhD dissertations and lectured at the School of Hard Knocks. I've torn through time and worked until 13 o'clock because I've had to. I grew up without grandmothers to fuss. I had a mother who worked too much to show her love. I had a sister who hit more than she hugged. My auntie was battle-worn and rough. I learned that being a woman was about being tough, so I pushed down my feelings and hid my thoughts because I've had to. I read a lot. I consume books and articles. I scrutinize font. I will never be a jingle dress debutante red tape trims my shawl and ties my mocks my dance arena is city sidewalks I stand on guard for elders to remember what they forgot so instead I took up the political front waded through the academic and legal swamp I've replaced all my ancient words with grades given on a bell curve a series of issued numbers legitimize my state, my creation stories came from cassette tapes from parents trying to escape his colonized fate, I have written off my culture as a total loss because i had to i forgive a lot i've let people take comfort at my cost given up pieces of myself for them to accost this country i have crisscrossed running on fumes and emotional exhaust did them a favor gave them my labor held the hands of the haters told them that with enough time they'd get there i've made circles out of squares because i've had to i have a tendency to care I will sincerely accept your despair, clumsily stumble through smudgings and prayers, learning what was taken, braiding my hair. I will answer your emails and questions. I will write to your Instagram message. I will gently accept and offer corrections, expand my understanding of culture definitions, fight for the angry and for the victims. I will remember their names, smuggling keys to unlock their cage, accept that it's scary to be brave. I will do all that I can to protect and save. And I will mispronounce words that I'm trying to learn. I will speak just as loudly even when I'm not heard. I will fight for a community that doesn't always accept me. And I will, and that's fine because I'm working on my humility. I will take up space, not because I always want to, but because I have to. Thank you. So we have finished the section of um, Gesalu. So the I love you section of the book. And now we're going to move into the Gesalu, which is I Hurt You. Um, I wish it wasn't the case, but, you know, I grew up with generations of pain. I grew up um, in a very unsafe and often violent household. And you know, the the pain that my family experienced and my parents experienced and I experienced, um, so much of that came from the legacy of how Canada has treated its Indigenous peoples. You can draw a straight line to that history and the way I grew up and what happened to me. And so I wrote um, a poem called Footnotes um, to tell that story in a very direct and linear way. And so <clears throat> I, I wrote this poem with my dad in mind. Um, I know I, I say that I write a lot of poems, but this one he was really heavily in the forefront of my mind um, as I wrote this piece. Introduction: The following stories deal with mature subject matter that may be disturbing. It's a story about kids whose legacy is deserving of something better than the vetted letters sent home. Lies in cursive promising they weren't so alone. This story is raw. It only includes what we saw, but don't worry, there's hope. Just scroll down to the footnotes. Chapter one, The Boats. Let's fast forward through this part. A bunch of men thought they could get a new start. They came to Turtle Island with great intentions to make names for themselves, never stopping to question why we died from all their infections. Chapters two through six, more and more of the same old shit. They thought they were better than us and we had no power to say enough is enough. Chapter seven. All Indians must go to heaven. Here we're going to take some time, really delve into the divine, the intentions of those that took our children, the ones who said everything about them was forbidden. It is in this chapter we will spill some serious ink because it is here we need to shift how you think. Grown men, the future faces of our money felt like they had some problems. They devised a national plan targeting children to solve them. Chapter 8 An exercise in faith. At this point, Canada is all in. We're not trying to trash anyone's religion, but the country chose to disregard our spirituality. The crown's rules, belief, and disdain was our new reality. Pick a denomination, just be sure you pick the correct one. Chapter 9 So many lost lives. The kids who went in were erased by a system. They lost the spirit under their skin. Many disappeared, their absence met with tears as police or nuns or no one at all confirmed parental fears. Footnote one for scope. Cheney Wenjack's Jack's last hope, a boy ran away, was given matches instead of a place to stay, found unmoving and cold. He never got the chance to grow old. Chapter 10, we pick up our pens. Footnote 2, storytelling is something we do, but we decided your style would be the best way to get through to you. Resume chapter we begin with unending resilience and laughter. Survivors dictate their stories to those willing to listen. Their voice is a gift in addition to all they've already given. The leader apologizes. Our resolve finalizes. Chapter 11. A fallen rock star becomes our secret weapon, cherished by the masses for his skilled verses, dedicated his last breath to our purpose. Footnote 3. He refused to let the world forget Cheney. Though not everyone agrees with your legacy, I must say, Walolin, please rest peacefully. Chapter 12, we will not be shelved. Determined to be heard, we push back with protest, ceremony, love, and poetic verse. This part is new, settlers didn't rehearse. We helped them along, showing them baby steps first. Footnote four, we will show them patience, give them an opportunity to do more, but make no mistakes. We will never go back to the way you treated us before. Epilogue, this section is currently being written. It comes at your end, but for us, it marks the beginning. (sighs) Hard stuff to think about. So this next poem is called Pennies. Very, very rarely am I ever overcome with a feeling that I have a poem and it needs to come out now. Writing is hard for me. I always say that I don't like writing, but I always love having had written, um, with the exception of this poem. I had in my brain this, this concept, this concept of Indigenous women being treated as a commodity um that has gone out of fashion and it the the concept the idea the poem the lines they just literally i I could not write this poem fast enough it was coming out of me just like that and so this is one of the only few poems that i've ever experienced where that has happened Um, and it is dedicated and about missing and murdered indigenous women it is called pennies She slays with those double braids. She is slayed because of those double braids, the original voice silenced from those double braids. They can be bought and sold, those double braids. In fact, there is a sale at the bay for those double braids. Look for the HBC original canoe for your half off Canadian branded series of snowshoes. Erase the creators of those goods, their origin and history, no need to be understood. And use them for your favorite winter activities, like lightly frolicking over her forgotten snow-covered body. It's buy one, get one misrepresentations of her story. Just look for the nearest store occupying our territory. Check the back of your status card for the special pin to activate the coupon that includes free judgment to go along with the perceived sin that what she got, she had coming. And if she goes missing, have her family bring in the newspaper clipping. Show it at the register for their discounted black suits, dresses, and other dark labels. Quality purchases that can be worn over and over again as a funeral staple. Given the current societal climate, they'll get plenty of wear out of this product. Like last year's fashion, it's so easy to forget her, just toss her remains in Manitoba's aptly named Red River. And the vitriol comes free with purchase. If she had some form of mental illness, it's a points card full of expert witness who would be remiss if he didn't remind us that she was at risk because she chose to be in the sex work or addiction business. You'll find the apathy on the shelf next to the sacred festival headdresses. After every 10 biased news stories, you'll get a free personal allegory about a guy who knows a guy who dated a Native girl because he doesn't see color and is well-read, who wants a special gold star because he went to a powwow once and totally listens to a tribe called Red. I'd say their names, but there are far too many. We are the forgotten Canadian penny, our coppery skin removed from circulation over time because it isn't as valued as the lighter dimes. It's 10 for one, what a deal. Just like our land, we come at a steal. Her body's a commodity, bought and sold as prepackaged native spirituality. Sorry, we don't sell an empowered indigenous matriarchy, but we do carry extra exotified Indians, included with batteries. And her life's receipt is marked final sale. There are no refunds on colonization retail. It's a Black Friday special with tax exemption. It's our culture turned boho style consumption. Keep beating those drums for social redemption. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get positive media attention. APTN coverage of a sunrise ceremony on a red morning because the red are mourning the double braids found 90% off in the bargain box. We don't know where they came from. The tag was ripped off. (sighs) heavy stuff and I um, I'm aware that this stuff is probably really hard to hear a lot of the times but if it's really hard for you to hear imagine what it's like to to live it right Um, so I always keep that in mind and I always think about how best I can explain people to take on this burden with us um as indigenous people, as indigenous as indigenous women, we need those allies. i don't I don't have all of all of the connections. I don't have um, all the influence or the power or the money, but you know, maybe somebody who hears my poetry does, and they're able to to take on that burden with me so that I don't have to carry it for so long. Um, and so that's why I write this stuff. So I promise you we are getting out of the um, really painful poems, but there's um, one more at least that I wanted to to read. and this came this poem came to me about how often when women do things that men do that so often it's deemed as special. Um, And that's just because those men have held positions of power for so long that have prevented women from being able to do very regular things Um, so that when we do something, it's deemed special because for some reason we are the first or the few who are able to do it. And it's not because we can't. It's not for lack of trying. It's because people in positions of power don't want to give up their positions of power. And so... This is me writing about an ideal future where women are no longer special for doing things that are very regular because all of those barriers have been taken down. And so we're not special. We're just living our lives. She will not be special There will be no reference to her next level. She will not break barriers or be the first. Her success will not quench a guilty thirst. Her history will not be both a blessing and a curse. And she will only ever experience unexpected hurt. She will walk on shards of glass as she stares at the sky. There will be no broken barrier high. She will sigh content in her place. She will have no need to demand space. She will be unremarkable simply by birth. She will have normalized worth. She will slip through streets unnoticed. She will automatically be given an earnings bonus. Her claims of pain will never be called bogus and her need to do so will be measured in iotas. Invisibility at its finest. Her smile will not be coaxed from shyness. There will be no singular day of celebration. There will be no challenges to her remuneration. She will not be a ghost or a host to ego. She will not dissect her chromosomes, debate the merits of her free throw. No chance of wherever she goes, we go. Banners about pussies and wit will languish in the garbage pit. There will be no protests over body business because no one will give a single shit. Her existence will be seamless. She will not do more and dream less. She will banish the diminutive suffix. She will be ignored and respected. She will not be society reflected. There will be no compliments that need to be deflected. She will be left alone. And finally, she will feel at home. So I have two more poems to do. So these poems are um, my triumphant They're in the gesal section of the book. So the, I place you into the fire. I hold you accountable. Um, And yeah, I guess that's all I have to say. I I hold you accountable to the folks who are listening to this. Um, If before you said, I don't know, because you truly didn't know, or you weren't involved or aware of something out of, Um, ignorance that's okay it's 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 I shouldn't expect you to to take action on things you don't know about but now now you know now you are choosing to disengage and so that is how I place you into the fire Um, I give you the knowledge and now I hold you accountable so with that my second last poem is called Just Another Native Poet this came um, <clears throat> or this poem was inspired because I had a non-Indigenous poet once t- tell me uh, to, you know, to maybe think about writing about different things, you know, like diversify um, my, uh, my pieces of art in my writing. Because, you know, you wouldn't want to be you wouldn't want to be pigeonholed. You wouldn't want to be a native poet. Right. And I thought, what a fantastic idea for a poem. And so this is a big old F you uh, <laughs> to that advice. <clears throat> be sure to di- diversify your pieces. You wouldn't wanna be pigeonholed as a native poet So it was said to me and me to myself in my constant self doubt that after a while my passion for my people would fall on deaf ears and rolled eyes. The following, a taste of why I will never give in on hustling my allies. Every word is something I've witnessed, read or heard. So I ask that you listen before you tell me what I say is absurd. Here we go again, they'll say to themselves. She's probably going to talk about water quality and mental health, 20 years of boil orders and contaminated wells, or 140 attempts in two weeks to kill themselves. It can't be that bad, because I hear if you live on reserve, chief and council will give you a free house. As a tax-paying citizen, I don't believe we should continue to support them. So what if we spend $4,000 less each year on every one of their children, because the young and white are the new post-secondary victims? After Affirmative action and designated seats are taking away opportunity from the country's elite. I worked hard to get where I am with no help from charity. Achievement should be based purely on a meritocracy. Because the halls were full of people who looked like me, I must have been outstanding to earn my degree. I have never, ever been given something for free, and I can't express my opinions on the CBC because everyone's too concerned with being PC. So you can see. Why, my frustration can push me to the other side of angry. Just because you feel your experience payments are a little light doesn't mean someone somewhere hasn't already paid the price. History's voice is color-coded by those who have always had the right to vote for it. Do you know what it's like to only see yourself as appropriated? To see Carly Kloss wearing a headdress on the runway half naked? To be told that spray-painted racial slurs on our homes are incidences that are isolated? You're lying to yourself if you think colonialism is outdated. Dated because I need a government-issued card that proves that I'm Native. A card that expires every 10 years. Point me to a colonizer whose ethnicity can be held in arrears. I would like to read the Federal White Act. I'd like to see your equivalent to e-tags and a res pass. Maybe live in a city that was founded by a man who put a bounty on your scalps on the corner of Cornwallis Street is where our friendship center is housed. Did you ever stop and think why we are called Redskins? Maybe it's because we've spent generations trying to scrub off the moniker of Dirty Indian. Trudeau is great and all, but statistically, I am still five times more likely to go missing. Justin, that Haida tattoo is cute, but you got to sit down and listen. It's time to get this country in a treaty condition. You can all suck your teeth and roll your eyes. But I'm simply not ready to diversify my writing to go with it because I am proud to be pigeonholed as a native poet. So with that, I am going to leave you with something for you to ponder on. Um, The story that led to this poem is um, when I was the poet laureate of Halifax from 2016 to 2018, I had uh, poet laureate obligations. I had to do six official um, readings and some of those were around specific events that were happening um, at the time within Halifax and in Canada. And one of those things was Canada 150. Now, when I learned about that, I would be doing this, I learned about it in the process of becoming poet laureate. And I said to them, I said, um, are you sure you want me to write a poem about the 150th anniversary of Canadian Canadian Confederation? Are you familiar with the kind of work that I do? Um, And they said yes, and I fretted about this poem for a very, very long time because I did not want to write a poem that celebrated 150 years of Canada doing horrible things to my community, to other Indigenous people, Um, but I also had to fulfill my poet laureate um, duty. And so I wrote this poem and I was so very, very, very nervous to perform it. I did it at the big Canada Day celebrations that they have on Halifax Common. And there were thousands of people there for the concert. And here they, you know, bring me up in between these, you know, great, you know, local musicians that, A bunch of patriots who had been, you know, into the beer all day wanted to listen to, and they bring up the Mi'kmaq Poet Laureate to do a poem, a critical poem about Canada. And so I tricked a bunch of people into uh, cheering for a poem that was critical of Canada on Canada's 150th anniversary of Confederation. And this poem is called um, What Good Canadians Do. And so I would ask them, Are you a good Canadian? And they would cheer. And then I would ask them again, and I would get into more detail. And anyway, I don't want to spoil the poem so you folks can hear it right now. So, this is the last poem that I'm going to leave you with. uh, And it's called What Good Canadians Do Are you a good Canadian? do you take pride in the country we live in? Do you explore the oceans, the prairies, and the mountains? Do you brag about your health care to all your foreign friends, change your cover photo to maple leaves and pride flags, boasting inclusively, high-five your diverse social group while Molson Canadian toasting? Do you give standing ovations for new Canadians at their swearing in Do you clasp hands with Indigenous women and men, empathize with the struggles we experience? Do you lend a hand to those who don't understand? Do you identify with more than double-doubles in hockey stadiums? You would never use words like squaw, redskin, or Indian. Of course not, because you are a good Canadian. This is a country that I want to be able to believe in. It's land that's been in my family for a thousand generations. And you support us because you know that we are equal citizens, that we should remain kind in our united fight against a biased system. You listen to those who are different from you. You are always willing to walk a mile in another person's shoes. You are grateful that we are just the red and white, excluding the blue. You've taken your history lessons as only one form of the truth because you recognize and acknowledge that 150 for some of us is relatively new. Of course, because that's what good Canadians do. You understand why some don't celebrate so you won't get mad you see they cut a maple leaf and laid the white square over red territory they told us it wouldn't be so bad then they raised our stolen lands to be flown as the canadian flag so you respect that a difference of opinion doesn't give you a right to make me a comment section punching bag after all you celebrate diversity as an enduring canadian trait and not a passing fad You will protect at any cost those who worship at your neighborhood mosque because the safety you have today, so many have lost. Your desire to reconcile is consistently renewed. You believe Canada is more than a history of old white dudes and you know that a person's ethnicity amounts to more than just food. That's what good Canadians do. You are honored by our history of keeping the peace you love our environment and know that resource extraction is not a renewable lease. You understand that some of us are afraid of police, so you offer to decode for those who don't understand the legalese. You know that this country has room for millions more refugees. You love that we have so much freedom of speech, but that doesn't mean what you say is consequence-free. After all, we own what we speak. We're Canadian. Please. You know we're not perfect and we own our mistakes. We pledge to do better because we know what's at stake. We will be good allies and not insufferable flakes. The marginalized are not for the privilege to dictate as a native woman, my thoughts you appreciate and my missing sisters cause you much heartache. The Canada of tomorrow will be better than Canada is now because it's not about free concerts and being one in the crowd. It's about applauding the fact that I am Mi'kmaq and proud. You will leave here tonight and you will be better. You will Google the names Colton Bushy, Tina Fontaine, and Barbara Kentner, and you will realize what it means to be called a settler. You will be kind, respectful, and compassionate through and through to all those who are different than you, because after all, that is what good Canadians do. And so with that, I want to say walaliak. Thank you so much for listening to me. Um, I I truly wish that I could be there. Um, I really love having the opportunity to have a back and forth about my poetry, to listen to your thoughts, um, answer your questions. So I really do invite you to contact me if you want. Um, the best way you can do that is by you know, sending me a tweet. Uh, I, I, I enjoy Twitter. I'm on it a lot. Um, my Twitter handle is at Betaleat, um, B-E-C-C-A-L-E-A-T. And I'm sure the organizers of this would be happy to pass along my email address if you wanted to reach me um, in a more uh, traditional electronic form. So um, thank you so much for listening to me Um, I don't really have anything else to say. So I will leave it at that. I really, really do hope that you are finding some sort of hope and balance and rest when you can in this really uh, interesting and upside down topsy turvy time. I think we're in this for still a while yet. So do what you can to be kind to yourself and kind to others. So um, thank you so much. Uh, No more See you later.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Rebecca Thomas reading to us from Halifax. This has been an episode of the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series, produced by Sarah Kratz, Austin Lee, and Matthew Cormier edited by Claire Peters, music composed and performed by Bruce Ziff. The CLC's programming is made possible by generous financial support from Dr. Eric Schloss and from the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. New episodes of the 2020-21 Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series will be posted monthly on the Canadian Literature Centre's website. Thanks so much for listening.